So you have a seat. If you've got a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, earlier this week, on my way home after picking my daughter from her preschool, I had one of those moments where you're like, I think I'll keep you for a little while longer, all right, because you... you Anyone who's a parent probably has had those moments where like, can we, can we trade this one in for another one? Like, can we get a reset button on this one at some point? Um, but you have those moments where you're like, I think I'll keep this one for a little while longer, right? And so we were on our way home from her Christmas, uh, the day that she had done her Christmas program from preschool. Uh, and so on our, on our way home, the, the, the Christmas program that they had done was um, the, the true meaning of Christmas. It was kind of this little, you know, all these little uh, three, four, five-year-olds are up there on the stage and they know half the words, maybe, maybe a third of the words that they're actually singing. They're kind of mouthing things, and they're all dressed up in their cute little outfits, and you know, lo and behold, here she comes in as a little angel. If they only knew, right? <laughs> but she comes in as a little angel and dressed in this little white robe and a little halo over her head, and she walks to the front, and she's, I, I will say, she was the cutest angel of all, and I'm a little partial. Um, but here she is, a little angel. She's singing, and so I pick her up later that day, and we get in the truck, and we're on the way home from school, and she goes, Daddy, Daddy, I know the true meaning of Christmas. Because they'd had like the little Charlie Brown uh, actors up there too, some of the older kids, and they were talking about what the true meaning of Christmas was, and they told the nativity story, uh, how it unfolded there. She said, I know the true meaning of Christmas. And I said, oh yeah, baby, what is it? And she said, it's not about presents, and it's not about lights, and it's not about cookies. It's about Jesus. And I thought, I'll keep you for a little while longer. Right, So it was one of those moments, man, where it's like the, the reality of the nativity kind of set in for her that Christmas is not about the things that we typically tend to associate with it, particularly in our culture as we think about the stress that it creates and shopping and all the challenges around visiting different family members and where they're located and splitting time between the two. Christmas is not about those things. Christmas ultimately is about Christ. You know, Christmas is not about soft, sentimental, warm Hallmark cards that you might pick up on the shelf and fill out and give to someone that you care for. It's not about some kind of impersonal Christmas spirit, right? Everyone talks about this Christmas spirit, right? Where's your Christmas spirit? You're such a Scrooge, right? It's not about some impersonal spirit. Christmas is not about snowflakes that fall as you kind of sit wrapped up cozy in your little cabin somewhere with smoke billowing from the fireplace. Christmas is not about yellow snow either. By the way, you shouldn't eat that. Okay. No one's ever told you. you should, it's not a good idea. Right? Christmas is not about snow. It's not about family or friends. Christmas is not about a fat man in a red suit or little people with pointed ears or a pointed hat. Right? Christmas is not about any of that. It's not about a red-nosed reindeer or jingle bells or a one-horse open sleigh dashing through the snow across the fields and fords. It's not about cookies. It's not about stockings. It's not about trees. It's not about trimmings. It's not about tinsel. It's not a little like Dr. Seuss right now, I think. Um, <laughs> but I'll keep going. It's not about any of those things. Christmas is not... It's not about wreaths or presents or ribbons or wrappings. It's not about mistletoe or lights or fireplaces or roasting chestnuts. Christmas is not even about credit card debt <laughs> or the constant comparisons between us and the people across the street or down the road. And it's not about fueling our insatiable desire for more stuff. Christmas is not about any of that. When you open the scriptures and you read, what you see that pops off the page is that what Christmas is about is about long-awaited promises and prophecies being fulfilled. 
It's about the arrival of the one through whom all things were created, stepping into human history. It's about the arrival of the one, uh, the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent, the long-awaited prophet who would truly speak the words of God to us. It's about the long-awaited priest who would forever mediate the relationship between God and man. It's about the long-awaited king who would rule forevermore, who would reign justly in righteousness. About the prophet, priest, and king who would come. It's about the long-awaited rescuer who would impale the enemies by raising up a horn of salvation to run through Satan's sin and death. It's about the rescuer and deliverer who would come, the word of the Father as we sing, now in flesh appearing. It's about the true God of true God, the light of light eternal, the necessary substitute who would live a sinless life in our place and die a death according to God's good pleasure, be crushed in order to save his people. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the manger is about. That's what this baby who was born that we celebrate every December 25th. That is what it's about. It's about Jesus. It's about the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world so that now we don't have to live in darkness any longer. But he shines light on who we are to be and who God is. Jesus is the true light, the long-awaited light, the piercing to spell the darkness. And this, listen, this is exactly what an old man that most people probably thought he was out of his mind, an old dude named Simeon who was hanging out in the temple on the day that the Holy Spirit brought him there when Mary and Joseph come in about a month after Jesus is born to do the baby dedication ceremony thing, right? They bring him into the temple to dedicate him and Simeon is there. And when Simeon lays eyes on Jesus, this infant who is done nothing but cry and wet his diaper to this point. When Simeon lays eyes on this Jesus, I want you to listen to what he says in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 35. The text tells us this in Luke chapter 2. It says, beginning in verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now listen, over the course of Advent, what we have been doing together as a, as a church is we have been 
preparing our hearts, right, to make room for the arrival of Christ. As we sing in that great carol, Joy to the World, let every heart prepare him room. We've been trying to prepare him room because if we, we fall victim to thinking that Christmas is about the presents and packages and ornaments and tinsel and family and friends and parties, then what happens is we begin to crowd the, the, the we begin to crowd Jesus out, but what we want to do is prepare room for him to receive him in. And so we've been looking at not only the fact of his coming, right? Because that's what most of us do at Christmas. We go, we recognize once a year, we're going to get together, we're going to sing some songs, we're going to hear some scripture read, maybe a message played some, or, 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 or preached, and we're, and we're going to think about the fact that Jesus came, the fact that God came in a baby, that he was born in a manger, as in, and he grew as an infant. We're going to think about the fact of that, but what we don't often focus on at Christmas is not just the fact of his coming, but the what for of his coming. Not just that he came, but why he came, the purpose for which he came, the results of, uh, of his coming. And so over the course of these last several weeks, that's what we've been looking at, that Jesus came to reveal the glory of the Father. and We've beheld his glory as, as, as the glory of the one and only, begotten of the Father in John chapter 1. Or that he came to, he came to dwell among us, that he came to deliver us from all of our enemies, from those who could do us ultimate harm in Satan's sin and death. That he came not only to dwell and to deliver, but to fulfill all the promises and prophecies that were made to the peoples of Israel throughout all of her generations. And this week, this week we want to see that not only did Jesus come to deliver and to dwell and to fulfill, but he came to console. But he came to console the very deepest longings of all of our hearts. And he did so by coming, as what Simeon says, as light. Came as light. Now, if we, there's lots of texts that focus on Jesus being the light, and Jesus himself says, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who comes to me shall not live in darkness, but have the light of life. So there's all kinds of texts that focus on the what of Jesus, the, the fact that he was light, but Simeon's here tells us the what for. Why was Jesus light? And there's a couple of things that he tells us that I want us to drill down on this morning, and I don't want us to miss them. And the first one is this. Is G, Simeon tells us that Jesus is light for glory. The light of Jesus is for glory. If you look in the text, in, in, in Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 32, Simeon tells us in the latter part of that verse that the light of Jesus is for glory to your people Israel. Now, there's several ways the Old Testament uses that word glory, and that's what Luke's drawing on here. He's drawing on this rich history of the understanding of what glory was, and one of the, it's kind of a multifaceted term in the Old Testament, but a couple of those facets are these. It was the radiance of God, the beauty of God, the brightness of God, the splendor of God, the brilliance of God, that he was this radiant light. But another way that the Old Testament uses the term glory is to talk about honor or, or privilege or prestige or adoration. And so the Old Testament talks about how God is, is arrayed in his glory, is, is in his splendor, in his majesty, his beaming brilliance and brightness. But it also talks about how we are to ascribe glory to God. We don't make him more beautiful than he is. We recognize it and honor him for it. And so these two facets of the term glory in the Old Testament, I think, are wrapped up in this term here that Simeon is using to say that Jesus, the light, has come for glory to his people Israel. 
Now, there's two ways, basically, that you can go about attaining or acquiring or achieving glory, right? You can either achieve glory and honor by the things that you accomplish, the things that you achieve, the things that you acquire, or you can attain glory and honor by being connected to someone who has achieved them, accomplished them, or acquired them. For instance, right, if you were the star running back on the Super Bowl winning team this year, now that's not going to happen here in Dallas this year. It's not going to happen in Dallas probably for a a long time. Um, It it hasn't happened for quite some time either, and I'm I'm a little happy about that. I know some of you hate me now. Uh, However, but if you were the star running back on this Super Bowl winning franchise and you scored the winning touchdown with three seconds remaining on the clock, you're going to be on every sports cast, local and national. You're going to be the lead story on SportsCenter. People are going to be doing stories about your life. Like here's interviewing your high school coach and talking to these guys who who knew you when you were playing peewee football, right? This guy was always something special. He was always amazing, breaking these records achieving these goals. You would get to visit the White House and you would get this ring on your finger, this big Super Bowl ring that weighs as much that you, that's why you have to work out when you play football because you wear these big rings. They're so massive. Right? So you would have all this glory and honor because of what you achieved. But listen, if you were the third string running back on that team, the third string running back on that team, and you didn't see the field at all in the Super Bowl, maybe even not throughout the playoffs, You know what you would get? The same ring, the same trip to the White House, right? The same trophy sitting in the trophy case there. And you, because you were part of that team, you were connected to that team. Listen, there are some individuals who achieve glory and honor on the basis of what they do. And there are some who receive glory and honor on the basis of what someone has done to whom they are connected. And what Simeon is saying here is that this infant child that Mary and Jesus are holding in their arms as they come to dedicate him in the temple, that he would be the one who would return and restore honor and glory to his people that had been lost. In fact, this is a huge theme in the Old Testament, that this glory and honor that had been bestowed upon Israel because God chose them as his people. And he didn't choose them. Moses says in Deuteronomy, he didn't choose them because they were a particularly impressive lot. Okay? He says, I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous of peoples on the earth. I didn't choose you because you were the most beautiful people on the earth. I didn't choose you because you were the most impressive people on the earth. I didn't choose you because you had the greatest moral record of everyone who's ever lived. But he says, I chose you and set my affection upon you because I loved you. Because I loved you. And through God's choosing of those people, there was an honor and glory that came to them. Because now they were the ones who were recipients of the radiance of God, the beauty of God, the brilliance of God. And there was this glory and honor because they were God's people. They were connected to him. He had rescued them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He had led them through the Red Sea. He had brought them into the promised land. And yet what Israel does throughout her history is she looks at the brilliance and the beauty and the radiance of God and she turns her eyes aside. She turns her eyes aside to the glittering, sparkly lights of all the other gods of the other nations. And so she goes and worships at their high places. She goes and worships at their altars. She goes and worships their gods in the way that they worship their gods. 
Because the brilliance and radiance and beauty of God was not enough. And the honor that comes from being chosen by him was not enough. So they go out and pursue their own glory and their own honor. And as a result, what happens is they actually don't achieve the honor and glory they're looking for. They actually bring shame upon themselves. And in fact, God promises throughout the prophets to judge them on account of their chasing after these glittering lights and not being satisfied with the brilliance and beauty of God. In Ezekiel chapter 6, what we see in in Ezekiel 6 is God promising to judge his people on account of their idolatry. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, idolatry really is kind of conveyed as spiritual adultery, like they're being unfaithful to their spouse. And listen to what he says about when judgment comes on Israel because of their idolatry. In Ezekiel 6, beginning in verse 6, he says, Wherever you dwell, the cities shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined. Your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you, have among the, when, when, when you have among the nations some who escape the sword, and when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And then listen to what he says would be the result of that. And they will be loathsome in their own sight, he says. They will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed and for all their abominations. In other words, for all their sin, for all their adultery against God, for all their idolatry and placing things above him, thinking that through those things, honor and glory are going to come. We're going to get it. What our hearts are longing for, we're going to find it. God says, actually, it's because of those things that I'm going to judge you. And and through those things that you're going to look in the mirror one day and you're going to kind of be disgusted with what you see going to be loathsome in your own sight because you've been chasing after glory and you've been chasing after honor in these twinkling lights over here and not in this beaming radiance and brilliance of who God is and the fact that he's acted on your behalf. So Israel lost that honor. They lost that glory. But what they were waiting for was a Messiah who would come and the Messiah would restore the honor and glory that Israel had forfeited. And whenever Simeon beholds Jesus there in the temple, he looks upon Jesus with his eyes and he says, this is the one who's going to bring back the glory. This is the one who's going to restore the honor. This is the one who's going to recapture the brilliance and beauty of God in the temple that God had promised this Messiah would come and he would act on our behalf to bring back the glory. And Simeon says, this is him. This is him, the one that we've been waiting for. And the way in which, listen, the way in which Jesus would restore that glory to Israel, the way in which Jesus would bring back the honor to his people would be by doing for them what they could not do in and of themselves. So when you read through the Old Testament, what you're going to see is those themes of of, of Israel being God's servant. Jesus would be the servant of God par excellence. Jesus would walk in obedience to God and observing every ritual and obeying every regulation of the law. So he would 
dot every I and cross every T of the law, Jesus would fulfill what Israel was supposed to be. And in so doing, because of their connection to him, the glory would come back, the honor would come back. And listen, what Israel needed was someone to restore glory and honor. And it's what you and I need as well. Because what we have done, and the Old Testament I think is so beautiful in the way that it paints these pictures, is because what we have done is the same thing Israel has done. Is we've turned aside We've exchanged the glory of God for a lie and worship created things, as Paul says in Romans 1, rather than the creator who's to be blessed forever. And so we've thought in these things, like in this relationship or in this job, honor and glory, I'm going to receive it, I'm going to get it. So I'm going to trade God for that. In physical pleasure, I'm going to get honor and glory. Something to satisfy me, I'm going to trade God for a, a, a momentary pleasure. We thought we're going to receive glory and honor through things that we could achieve or accomplish. In fact, we find ourselves in the same position that our first parents did in the garden whenever Adam says, God, basically, Adam and Eve say, God, basically, we don't trust you. That what you have placed out of bounds needs to stay out of bounds. But we're going to cross over that threshold and take it for ourselves because we think in that we're going to find more fullness than in you. So I don't trust you. And in so doing, what Adam did was plunge the rest of humanity into sin, and we fall in following those footsteps every day. And what Israel needed, you and I need, we need someone who would restore and bring back the honor and the glory. That's what the light has come for. And so now when you read the Old Testament... Right? All of a sudden it begins to make sense that Jesus has done all these things. Right? Jesus is the one who crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who has redeemed his people from slavery and captivity. So whenever you see God redeeming his people out of bondage to Egypt, you see that it's a picture of what he would do in Jesus later on down the line. When you read about the Passover lamb now and those whose, whose doorposts were covered in the blood were those whom God passed over and didn't visit with the death of the firstborn. So that God would give his firstborn as the Passover lamb so that he might pass over the sins of the people who have been covered by that blood, who have trusted in what God has said and not what they could achieve or accomplish for themselves. When you read about the priestly office, Aaron and his lineage in the Old Testament, it begins to make sense now. Jesus is the one who mediates the relationship between God and his people forever. When you read about the prophetic office in the Old Testament, those whom God raised up to speak truth to his people and call them back to himself, you see that Jesus is the true prophet who is not only the one who speaks truth, but is truth, the way, the truth, and the life. You see that when God gave his people kings to rule over them, at their request that Jesus is the one who ultimately would be the king that would reign forevermore and reign justly in righteousness. When you read Leviticus chapter 16 about the day of atonement, you see these two goats there. It makes sense now, right? There was one goat the priest would confess the sins of the people over and send out into the wilderness as the scapegoat, taking away the guilt and the shame of the people on account of their sin. And another one, he would confess their sins over that head of that goat, and they would cut its throat and drain its blood and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, whereby the wrath of God was turned aside once again from his people's sin. 
You see that Jesus is both. He is the one who was crucified outside the city, outside the camp. And he took upon himself our guilt and our shame to remove it so that honor and glory might be restored. And his blood was shed so that the mercy of God might be made accessible to people who have committed spiritual adultery from the time they were born. It makes sense. The lights come on. Jesus is a light for glory. But notice what else he says. He says also that Jesus is not only a light for glory, but he also says that Jesus is a light for revelation. The light of Jesus is not only for glory, but also for revelation. And that word revelation in the text literally means this. It means to uncover or to lay bare. So what is it that the light of Christ has uncovered or laid bare? I want to suggest to you two things. First of all, he's uncovered and laid bare who God is. And he's uncovered and laid bare who we were created to be as the perfect God-man. Who God is and who we were created to be. When it comes to light, the light of Christ, when you think about light, right? When you think about the lights that are above our heads or the lights that are lighting the stage right now, you cannot see light except for its radiant point and its focal point. Okay? The place where it originates and the place where it terminates. Otherwise, you can't see light. You don't walk outside on a crisp, clear winter morning and say, I see the light beams all around me. But you look up to the sun and you see the point of origination and you look at everything that it's terminating on and you can see by it. But you can't see light. You see that it's point of origination, it's point of termination, where it radiates from and what it's radiating towards. And when you think about the fact that God is light, the Bible teaches us that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that it is God who dwells forever in an unapproachable light. In other words, he's this incredibly bright brilliance and radiance, and he dwells that way for, for all of eternity. But yet what God has done is he's taken a magnifying glass, right? That's the point of origination, the point from which it radiates, but he's taken a magnifying glass and he's placed it over himself in human history. And as the unapproachable light of who God is and has always been gets channeled through that magnifying glass, it gets focused, focused solely and exclusively into the person of Jesus Christ. So you see the light at its point of origination, God the Father who dwells in an unapproachable light, and you could place that magnifying glass over him, and all of a sudden, the sun. You see him in the sun, and you see him only in the sun. So what Simeon is saying to us in this text is he's saying, listen, Jesus is not only a light for glory, but also a light for revelation. He shows us who God is. He shows us who the Father is. He shows us who God has always been and will always be. Jesus is the focal point of the light of God in human history. And so one of the things this means for us, listen, let's get a little bit practical here. One of the things this means for us is this, is that every Christmas, whether people recognize it or not, whenever they gather in churches to sing the carols, whenever they gather in churches to hear the scriptures read and the story told, whenever they hear us talk about the, 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 the Son of God clothed in flesh, the Godhead see, when they hear us talk about what Paul says in Colossians when he says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, 
when they hear those things every Christmas, what they're celebrating, whether they know it or not, are the exclusive claims of Christianity. The exclusivity of Christianity. That every, there, there, there are no other ways to see God other than in Christ. If Christmas is true, if the God who has called, caused all things to be created by the power of his word clothed himself in flesh and became like us, a man. If Christmas is true, then there is no other place that you can look to see God. There are no other paths to God. There are no other roads to God. There are no other stairs to God. God has come down the stairs to us, and Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. It's the exclusivity of the Christian claim. Now listen, whenever you talk about that, though, at Christmas, that doesn't make a whole lot of people really happy. <laughs> right? There's a lot of people who take issue with the exclusivity of Jesus and of Christianity. In fact, they might say, push back on you a little bit and say, listen, that's my problem with all you Christians. that You think you're the only ones who have the way. It's so narrow-minded. It's so bigoted. They kind of sit back behind their walls and launch those accusations. But listen, maybe that's you this morning. Let me respond to that just momentarily before we move on. And if, if it's not you, maybe you've heard that before. It'll give you a way to respond to it. Listen, if I were to go to, a, to, to four different doctors, let's say I was having some kind of GI issues in my stomach and didn't know what was going on, and so I went to four different doctors. And the first three doctors that I went to, the first three doctors that I went to all said, hey, listen, it's just, right, you maybe have a little gluten intolerance or something like that, and, and maybe that's pretty common, right, at least... These days, I never heard of it before until a few years ago, but I know people actually really struggle with that. I'm going to back out of that now because I don't know. <laughs> so maybe you have, a, the first three doctors say you've just got some kind of allergy, right? To some kind of something in the food that you're eating. But you go to the fourth doctor and the fourth doctor says you have terminal cancer growing in your stomach. It's going to kill you. If we don't go in with an invasive procedure, remove that tumor, begin to radiate it and put you on dosage of chemotherapy. Now, you might look at that fourth doctor and say, you could be wrong, because these other three guys told me that it's not what it, what it was. Or you could be right, or you could be crazy, but you're not narrow-minded. right? What you have is a different diagnosis for my condition. And because you have a different diagnosis for what's ailing me, you have a different prescription and a course of treatment for me. You may be wrong, or you may be right, but you're not narrow-minded. And when it comes to the exclusive claims of Christianity, what I want to say to you is this. What I want to say to people who call, us narrow, call Christians narrow-minded and call Christians bigoted is to say this. Listen, we may be wrong. We may be right, but we are not narrow-minded. What we believe is we have a different diagnosis for the human condition than every other world religion. Every other world religion says, listen, all you really need, because you were born innately good, and you just need a little bit of boost, some examples, some models to follow to show you how you should live, and all you need is a little bit of teaching and morality, and that's going to make everything better for you. But Christianity has a different diagnosis of the problem that you and I have. Christianity has a diagnosis that says there's something that there's a spiritual cancer growing within your body that's so deep and so pervasive that it affects every part and faculty of who you are. Everything about you. And so what you need, but the, 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 that's the diagnosis and what the prescription was, was God would have to become a man. <laughs> 
And he would have to do everything that you were supposed to do and then suffer the consequences of what you did. It may be wrong or it may be right, but it's not narrow-minded. It's a different diagnosis. And listen, if, that's, if, if, it's, if it's a different diagnosis, if you went to those four doctors and three of them said you just got a gluten intolerance and the fourth one said, no, you've got terminal cancer, wouldn't you think that you would explore that a little bit to see if maybe he's true? Maybe what he's saying is right. Maybe what he's saying is accurate. And that really is my problem. See, Jesus came to shed light, to uncover the person of God. But not only does he uncover the person of God, and it's very exclusive, it is. But not only does he uncover the person of God, but he also uncovers who we were to be created in his image. See, Paul says in his letters to the churches that he writes to, he says that Jesus is the second Adam. And where the first Adam failed the test in the garden, his garden, by not trusting what God had said, Jesus passes the test in his. In the garden of Gethsemane, as he sheds drops of blood in prayer before his father, he passes the test and submits himself to obedience to the will of God. And Jesus, as the perfect God-man, not only shows us who God is, but who we were created to be. He uncovers for us. Listen, you can't see light other than its radiant point or its focal point, but you buy it, you see everything else, don't you? Everything. If you lived in darkness, you couldn't see anything. And what you see whenever Jesus comes onto the scene is the light of Christ sheds light abroad on who God, God's vision for humanity, who he created men and women in his image to be and how they were supposed to live. And so what happens when the lights come on? I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're walking in your, in your house at night, late at night. I know growing up in um, kind of a lower middle class family in South Louisiana under a bunch of pine trees, Okay, with kids who left crumbs everywhere on the floor. Anybody else got that experience? Constantly like sweeping and mopping and sticky stuff. And just, I mean, we, don't even, we, we need new furniture, but we're, we just have resolved with the fact we're not going to get it until they graduate high school. Okay, and so because it's not worth it, it's just going to be messed up the next week. So all this crumbs and messiness in the house, they were sometimes as a kid getting up and going to the bathroom, you turn the light on and in the middle of the floor was a roach. And that roach would, as soon as the lights came on, boom, it would, right? It doesn't like the light. It runs from it. So once the cower in the, in the corner in the darkness would kind of crawl under the crevices and go back to where it came from, right? Because sometimes when the light comes on, it, it uncovers things that we don't like to see. And when the light of Christ begins to shine, it reveals for us not only who God is, but who we were created to be. Because in Jesus what you're going to see in Jesus, you see the loyalty of God in Jesus. It uncovers your failure to keep covenant with God and man. Your failure to be faithful to God who has set his affection upon you as his beloved. And your failure to keep your promises and pledges to those around you. When you see how faithful God was in Christ, it uncovers your unfaithfulness. When you see the grace and mercy of God in Jesus leading to your forgiveness, it uncovers your own bitterness and resentment that you continue to hang on to and harbor as you pursue revenge instead of letting that go and forgiving. It uncovers that in your heart when you see the person of Christ. When you see the generosity of God in Jesus, it uncovers the greed festering in your heart. So maybe once a year you're willing to kind of write a check to somebody who's in need at Christmas time. That's what everybody does. I'm going to do that. 
But January through November, right? What is it that's growing in there? That, is it greed or generosity? When you see the generosity of God in Christ, all of a sudden it frees you because it convicts you. And you see it in stark contrast to your own greed. And when you see the absolute purity of God in Jesus, it uncovers the impurity of your thoughts, desires, and actions. When you see the self-giving nature of God in Jesus, it uncovers your own selfishness and that you make decisions based upon what's best for you and only you and not anyone else. And yet God stepped into the messiness of our lives by going from being the eternal son of God to now someone who's bound to a body forever. You see the kindness of God in Christ and it exposes your indifference. You see the obedience of God in, of Jesus and it uncovers your disobedience. You see the holiness of God in Jesus and all of a sudden you realize I've just been leasing space to God and I've been retaining ownership of everything. You see when the light comes on, it, sometimes it uncovers things we don't want to see. Which is why some people push away from him. Because they don't want to do the hard work of repentance. The light of Christ is for glory and it's for revelation. But notice as we close this morning, the light of Christ isn't just a warm glow. Like most of us at Christmas, we think of the light of Christ, right? We think of like this Thomas Kincaid painting. You ever seen Thomas Kincaid? Gifted artist. Right? So you Thomas Kincaid painting, and you got this snowy scene with snow falling all around, and you got this little warm glow behind this frosted glass pane diffusing the light, this little just warmth of Jesus, the warmth of who he is, the warmth of Christ. But what Simeon says is that he's not a, a, a diffused glow behind a frosted glass pane, but he's like a laser beam that pierces and it cuts, but he does so to save. In fact, Simeon says in verse 30, when he beholds Jesus, he's beholding the salvation that God has afforded and provided for his people. And then you drop down to what he says to Mary and Joseph, and he says, this one, he's going to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In fact, he's not only going to divide people, but he's going to divide hearts. He's going to divide hearts. Because he's not just a warm, diffused glow, but he's like a laser and for some people, he carves them out and brings them in. Others, because they don't like what they see when the light comes on, he cuts them off and they push away. But that's the light of Christ. That he's come to, to restore glory and honor on account of what he's done, not what you've done. That he's come to show you who God is and who you were created to be. And he says, by the way, he says it's not only for you, but also for all the nations. Revelation to the Gentiles. Which is part of the reason we're taking up a mission offering at Christmas. And he says, this light that is for glory and it's for revelation. Those who want to achieve their own glory by turning away from the brilliance of God toward other things. They're going to be cut off and pushed away. But for those who receive the glory that's been achieved for them in the person of Christ, they are carved out and brought in to the family of God. So what makes the difference between whether or not you're carved out and brought in or cut off and pushed away? And here it is. I want you to notice what Simeon had been waiting for. He says, 
The text tells us he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. See, the way God, the way God prepares you to receive this light is by awakening within you a desire for consolation and comfort that nothing in this world can afford you. Nothing in this world can afford. See, men have been waiting for the consolation. They've been waiting for comfort to come. And perhaps he had tried all kinds of things to achieve that, but God had promised him he would not die until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. And he says, this is the one who brings the consolation. This is the one who brings the comfort. The way God prepared Simeon to receive Christ at his first coming was by awakening with him this desire for consolation that nothing in this world could, could satisfy. And there's, God is doing the same thing as he prepares us to, for his second coming. He's awakening within us. You look around at the news clippings and the headlines online, in the newspaper, if any of you still read that, on, on, on the television news channels, local and national, and you see all the chaos in our world. And one of the th- ways God's preparing his people for his second arrival is by stirring within them a desire for consolation and comfort that nothing in this world can offer when they see the chaos around them. But listen, there's a third coming of Christ that happens between his first and second, and it comes at conversion. And those who are converted and carved out and brought in, what God does many times to prepare them for that is he begins to stir in their hearts to awaken this longing for comfort and consolation that no relationship, that no position, that no promotion, that no amount of monetary possessions could ever, could ever satisfy. Maybe some of you this morning, God is frustrating you (laughs) in all of your Christless pursuits and enterprises because he's wanting to stir within you an awakening of this desire for consolation that you can't find anywhere other than him. Maybe some of you have been trying to satisfy the guilt and shame that you feel on account of what you've done or what's been done to you, but you cannot find it apart from the Lord's Christ, the light, the light for glory and for revelation. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to trust him. I want to invite you to turn your eyes from whatever glittering objects you've been beholding And look at the beaming brilliance of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Dave and the band are going to come back and they're going to lead us in a song as we celebrate this truth together. And as they do, I'm going to be in the back. And I would love to visit with you. If that's you, if you feel God awakening this desire for consolation in your life, I'd love to visit with you about that. Christ has come as a light to bring glory and revelation. My hope and my prayer is that he'd be carving you out and bringing you in because there's something that's stirring in here that you cannot find an answer far apart from him. Let's pray together. Father, today, we are grateful for the light of Christ. We're grateful for the fact that he has come. We're grateful for the fact that we don't have to grope in the darkness any longer to try and determine who you are, but you have so clearly revealed yourself in him that you put the magnifying glass over the light of who you have always been and it is channeled and focused in the person of Christ and nowhere else. 
God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who has been in that position where they have perhaps thought that sounds rather, rather exclusive, that sounds rather narrow-minded, I pray that they would consider the fact that it may just be true. And that the Christian diagnosis of their condition is worth their consideration. And Father, for believers in the room this morning, whose eyes have turned away from the beauty and brilliance of Christ. And they've been focused and captivated by other objects that are glittering that are not gold. Father, I pray they would turn back to him. Their glory. As of the one and only. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.